Welcome to the Carbon Sense podcast from El Soy Advisor, where we do our best to uncomplicate the carbon landscape. I'm your host, Abigail Peterson, Director of Agronomy at the Illinois Soybean Association. And today we're discussing conservation best practices as they relate to carbon programs and the nutrient loss reduction strategy. With us today is Jim Eiserman, Illinois Sustainable Ag Partnership Soil Health Specialist. Jim, thanks for joining us today. Well, thank you for having me on, Abigail. Always happy to sit and talk anything to do with cover crops. It's always great to talk with Jim about cover crops. It's one of the, I think this will be one of the most fun podcasts. Jim serves as the soil health specialist for the Illinois Sustainable Ag Partnership. He graduated from the University of Illinois in 2002 with a bachelor's degree in crop sciences and returned home to work on the family farm with his father. He has experience working with cover crops in his previous roles with the Soil Health Partnership and as a seed dealer, as well as utilizing annuals and other forages and grazing systems. He currently has a 65 head cow-calf operation. The farm includes a 900 acres in Livingston and LaSalle counties with 120 acres in permanent forage and the rest in a corn soybean rotation. So as mentioned today, we're going to talk about conservation best practices that contribute to soil health and are closely related to carbon programs and the nutrient loss reduction strategy. We're really going to focus on the management strategies that you should consider when applying these practices for the first time. Here, I really want to jump into the reality of adopting these practices. The common thread throughout these programs is usually focusing around the main adoption of either no-till or reduced till and cover crops. So Jim and I have talked to many farmers and have experienced a lot of new farmers approaching these um, practices on their fields. And many farmers fear experiencing a yield drag when they first start to transition um, from multiple passes of tillage to just going straight to no-till. So what strategies do you suggest to minimize and combat yield drag in a no-till system? Yeah, so first of all, recognizing that it is a change in your system um, and it is a transition and your soil will will change. You know, So no-tilling is a lot more than just not tilling. It's a, just a different management program that you're out there doing. Um, so recognizing number one, I think everybody's aware, you know, soybeans are much more forgiving and definitely an easier thing to start off with if we're going to go to a no-till system. Um, so jumping in, no-tilling soybeans into some corn stalks, you know, people usually have really good success with that. But on the corn side is where I think guys tend to struggle a little bit more. And I actually wouldn't advocate going straight into a no-till system for corn right off the bat. Um, I think you want to look at strip till is really ideal in my book. I think from an agronomic standpoint, it is a, just a really good way to, to farm corn if it's something that would work out for you. Because uh, what we can have if we try to go into a, a soil that has been tilled for many, many years and just does not have soil structure to it, particularly in the springtime, we can have some wetter soils. Um, we can get some uh, seed slotting if we run the planter across, if conditions aren't right. Um, in some situations, even if conditions are good, if the soil has just been, you know, kind of tilled to death over the years. So that's one of those things that, you know, soybeans, again, are, are resilient to that, but that's where we have a lot of issues with, uh, with corn early on. So when we talk about no-till and reduced, till, reduced tillage systems, you know, it, it doesn't have to be the same for every crop. Um, we can't continue to do something like a strip till or, you know, maybe we would need to do some minimal tillage ahead of a corn crop early on uh, till our soil changes. Um, strip till is something that if you're on highly erodible ground or, or hillsides, we do have some problems with that. So I do recognize that, that, um, you know, if you're in a, a, a slope situation where you can have some erosion of the strips, maybe jumping right into no-till in that scenario might be worthwhile. Um, the other thing is, you know, nutrient management and nitrogen ahead of corn. Uh, we'll talk more about that probably when we look at cover crops, but 
we still see things such as starter fertilizer being used a lot. And I think that's a, an important thing to use. Uh, but, you know, at the end of the day, recognize your soil will change over time. It will build structure. That'll probably take four to five years. And I just know from our, our early experience, we tried no-tilling once right off the bat way back, you know, 20 plus years ago, and it was just not a good scenario. Uh, nowadays that our soils kind of transition, that soil structure is there. You know, we're able to go out and no-till corn. Uh, we still tend to strip till if possible, but uh, we're not afraid to go out and no-till corn if we need to. Yeah, and that's actually a good point. Usually when we are talking to farmers about like their, their, especially in this space, when you see all these programs out there and you're trying to make that first um, step, sometimes no-till is the just starting with no-till and not starting with cover crops at the same time. We usually talk about that with farmers. Yeah, and, that, and that's something that you, you kind of hear that both ways. And I think early on, I was maybe subscribing too, to the idea of, well, you adopt them both at the same time. And we certainly work with growers that do. Um, but we do see, I would say, the most successful growers who adopt cover crops have already adopted and made that no-till and reduced tillage system work first, and then they add the cover crops into the system. Yeah, definitely. And I did start this, you know, conversation off with a bang because it's really, you know, we can talk about the soil health benefits all day long, but um, it is, you know, getting to the reality of the practices and, you know, do you um, talk about a yield drag right off the bat when um, we talk about the transition into the system or? Well, we certainly, I, I believe you can avoid a yield drag. A lot of it does come down to the management scenarios uh, that those farmers are doing. And they can be difficult because it's hard to switch um, all your acres at once. So I think that's what we run into is when we start talking about the management that's needed, whether it's for no-till or for cover crops, oftentimes, you know, growers just wanting to experiment with us on a few acres. So if you're talking about new planter attachments or changing your nitrogen management, it can be really difficult to think that you're going to spend that kind of money in order to just, you know, go out and experiment on 40 acres. So when we talk with growers, I know you and I, when we, the growers that we're working with, we're always kind of asking questions about their equipment, their, their things that they do, the time that they have, and trying to find those ways around those equipment scenarios and um, trying to make it a little bit easier so that they can apply those practices, you know, the nutrient management and the seeding techniques for cover crops, um, all those different things, really trying to make it work for their operation so that they don't see those negative consequences that sometimes pop up. Because there are a lot of benefits to this. We know that there's good things that come out of the soil health, but they sometimes take time, you know, some, especially on high yielding ground which we tend to work a lot on, you know, we're talking with growers that, you know, 70 bushel beans, they're not happy with those anymore. They want higher than that. And they want, you know, good corn yields. And so we're definitely um, trying to work with them to make sure that in the early years, they're not having those bad experiences. So down the line, three to five years, they can really start to see the benefits of it. I love walking through the planning process with farmers because then it does um, bring up some some red flags that then we can just say, hey, we've seen this not, we've seen an approach done differently and it usually shows success. So um, it's really worth sitting down and planning it out and walking through all those steps. Um, and so one thing that we, when we start the conversation towards soil health, it's really getting that living root structure in the ground at all times of the year. And, and to accomplish that, we really need to focus on the overwintering cover crops. And so for farmers first adopting an overwintering cover crop, um, what works well for farmers? And then what challenges do we usually see? Well, hands down, the most popular cover crop is, is cereal rye. And I think, uh, you know, if you're involved in cover crops, you're probably well aware of that. But if you're just jumping into it, you know, sometimes you're really hit with all these different choices. And, you know, that's 
I love all the different cover crops. What really interested me on the livestock side of things early on was just all the different options out there. Uh, you know, you get away from just the corn and soybean world. So it's really easy to get excited about all these other cover crops that are out there as well. Uh, but at the end of the day, we, we use cereal rye a lot for a couple of reasons. Um, number one, it can be seeded just about any, any time of year. Uh, we can push the seeding dates really late after our cash crop harvest. Ideally, it's done early. I mean, we want to be, be clear about that. Ideally, we'd be getting it out there in you know, late September or early October. Uh, but we can push it into November, even into December. You know, some guys are even frost seeding it or spreading it over the winter if they don't get all their acres done. So it's a very resilient and reliable cover crop. Um, it also isn't very susceptible to some of the herbicides, the residual herbicides that we use throughout the year when guys are trying to get something like a legume or a brassicas established. Um, sometimes those are um, affected much more by some of the herbicides that we use. So cereal rye doesn't have too many problems with that. And then come springtime, you know, it takes off growing. And, you know, a lot of guys will say, well, I just, I don't have that much growth out there in the fall. Well, you know, cereal rye is a winter annual. It, it's not, even if you seed it early, it's going to be somewhat limited in its fall growth because it needs to go through that vernalization process. But come springtime, it takes off. It's going to take off earlier than anything else. It's going to start putting that growth on there and we can start to get that biomass and that root mass, uh, both so both above and below ground, which is what we're looking for. Uh, I think the trick is just identifying when we talk about our cover crop species, it's not just the cover crop, but it's what's the cash crop that's going into it. So we want to make sure that we're, um, you know, managing the cash crop. So mixing up families always works well, right? So if we're going to talk about our cereal rise of grass, and if we're going to plant a legume into that, that usually works really well. If we're going to talk about planting corn into cereal rye, well, now we're talking about a grass into a grass, and we really need to think through our management system when we do that. So I would say the beginner level, yeah, cereal rye with soybeans um, is still, it's, it's been very, very popular. So cereal rye planted after your corn harvest, coming back the next spring with, with soybeans no-tilled into it to get that overwintering cover crop. You're going to get a lot of those benefits in that springtime. Um, and it's usually a pretty good way to get started with an overwintering cover crop. Definitely. And I'd say some of the success stories we see with cereal rye can be, especially in the first few years of really seeing the physical benefits from soil structure, um, seeing more uh, diversity, hopefully with, um, you know, we see more beneficial insects, um, but also there are a lot of challenges. And so Usually when we approach the cover crop, we're talking to the farmers about their goals um, and what they want to accomplish. If we're looking at soil erosion or weed control, um, then we might tailor that cover crop to look at, hey, you want to start looking at weed control, that's really going to have to amp up the population to crowd out some of those weeds. Um, same with soil erosion. If you want to keep soil intact, you're going to have to get a lot of good ground coverage. So one of the big challenges in the spring, especially when you're really looking into farmers who have done cover crops a couple of years, have gotten a little, you know, experience with termination, but now we're at the stage where we're really wanting to maximize the soil health benefits and not cut ourselves too short in the spring, but also not encroach on the risk that we'll have to the cash crop development and yield at the end of the day. How do we maximize the, the benefits of increasing as much um, spring growth as we can um, without getting into too much trouble? And that's definitely become a, a, a bigger topic as we've pushed up our soybean planting dates. So many growers really pushing, um, pushing it up by a couple of weeks compared to, you know, maybe 10 years or so ago. So planting green has become a lot more popular in those scenarios, just simply trying to maximize their, they're trying to get as much rye growth or whatever cover crop they're using 
um, at the time that they want to go out there and plant the corn so or plant the soybeans rather so they're looking at maybe planting at that 12 to 16 inch height of, of uh, cereal rye growth just because that's when they're their date that they want to get their soybeans out there planted. So that's become a lot more popular just to wait and plant green till they hit that maximum biomass that they want for their soil health benefits. Although many of them would really like to see more biomass out of their cereal rye. Uh, but as you said, they don't want to sacrifice what they feel are the best agronomics in getting that soybean planted earlier. But we do want to watch that point once we get to about, you know, 18 to 24 inches. Um, you know, if we, if we want to terminate before planting, um, that's when we want to get that termination done. Cause once we get about that two foot stage of growth, that's when we really want to talk about planting green to avoid that wet mat that can happen. If we terminate that and think we're going to come back 10 days to two weeks later and plant, that's kind of like the tipping point where now we have so much biomass that won't break down quick enough. Um, that plant may lodge over and cause that wet mat that can cause us big delays in getting our, our crop planted. So once we hit that kind of 18 inch to two foot stage, we definitely want to think about planting green kind of regardless uh, when we're doing soybeans. You know, again, I'm not an advocate of planting corn green into cereal rye. You've got that grass into a grass. Um, it, you know, some guys, it can be done, uh, particularly maybe if it's a lot smaller, uh, but definitely be careful if we're looking at trying to um, plant corn green and does something like a cereal. No, definitely. And we could probably go, we could do a whole nother podcast on termination. Um, and uh, it's really fun when you can start to use visuals and we can show we've seen a lot of experiences where it's worked well and, and some challenges that then we know it was because of we the cold days and it wasn't getting good translocation or, um, you know, just the type of herbicide used wasn't right for that cover crop. So hopefully using those reference guides and you can always reach out to, to Jim um, to ask questions. Um, so jumping from termination, you know, uh, getting into um, more of than what we just see in the landscape of Illinois. So as, as we're seeing hopefully more cover crop adoption, um, we're seeing more different types of application being used. And um, obviously the drill is a popular um, one. It gets great seed to soil contact, gets you best a really great establishment. But, you know, if you're um, looking at large acreage, you're looking for, you know, you have a limited amount of time after harvest when things are busy to get into the field and a 15 foot drill just isn't going to cut it. Um, what other application methods do we see used in the fall that show success? Yeah, farmers have tried to look to some some other options and it can be difficult because we talk about how, you know, you need to pay close attention to your cover crop. You need to ensure the best success for it. And the drill is certainly uh, that probably that best way to do that, but we do have to be realistic if we want these practices on on large acres. Um, I think we do need to start to kind of maybe give up that picket fence type stand sometimes, um, but still get really good benefits because we're getting a good cover crop stand out there. So the popular, probably the quickest way for farmers and the and the easiest entry into getting cover crops out there is doing some sort of a broadcast application in the fall. Um, I, we really like to see uh, some seed to soil contact, which is usually doing some vertical tillage or some sort of light incorporation like that. So, you know, simplest way for somebody is to, if they're already doing a fall fertilizer, dry fertilizer application, mixing that in with their dry fertilizer and getting it spread out. And if they're doing a vertical tillage pass, you know, just kind of doing that light incorporation. Um, you know, it's not necessarily perfect. Uh, some guys don't like doing the vertical tillage because you can get stalks blown or things like that. But 
if those are things that you are already doing, that's a very simple way to get some cover crops on a lot of acres for a very low cost. Uh, we see some guys just broadcasting on top of the soil surface. That's a little more hit or miss. I mean, it takes the right environment to, to get them going, but you know, an even lower entry in terms of cost, um, you can get across a lot of acres. Uh, we have seen this year in some of the programs we're involved in a lot of aerial applications or um, even using high clearance cedars like the Hagies. This year worked out really well for those. I know, you know, we've walked some of those fields and they look really good, the ones that have been in the programs. Um, but again, that has to be done the right, um, you know, at the right time and the right way. But farmers really like that because it gets off their plate. Uh, they're contracting it out to somebody else. It's not something where they have to take the time to do and it's on before harvest. So they, they do kind of like, like the, at least the idea of those types of applications going in before the, the crops are harvested. And it also opens a window for a lot of other species to be used. Cause when we talk about overwintering cover crops, if we want to get away from cereal rye and look at some of these other things, what we find is they have to be seeded a lot earlier. So that is a, for, for people looking to get those legumes and brassicas and annual ryegrass established, they're, they're looking to those types of applications. And I need to at least mention too, I guess the planter, you know, we do see a lot of people just going out there with their uh, row crop planters, usually on a 15 inch type spacing. It's something we've done ourselves and uh, that, that can work really well because then the next year when you come back, you, if you have an RTK type system or, or good auto steer, you can just split the row. Um, and that, that helps a lot in terms of that springtime when we talk about the cool wet soils or the corn with a lilo path, your nitrogen, that, that gives us a nice buffer zone. So we have seen some people picking up on that and just going to that 15 inch row cover crop and that's worked well. Definitely that's one of my favorite applications is you know that 15 inch row can still give you quite a bit of biomass included in the system increasing organic matter opportunity but then not you know intimidating that cash crop um, as that it needs one of the most critical times is when that cash crop needs to just get emerged out of the, the ground. So I really like that application. Like you said, seeing more strip till being used, it's a great complement to the, the strip till system as well. So hopefully we see more um, fields this year being used with a 15 inch row spacing and then changing up, you know, just having the flexibility of when it, when you have the year that aerial seeding really will work because you're just getting that moisture at the right time and you can kind of plan for that and that works. But then if it's not, you know, ch changing the um, application um, as, as the weather permits. So um, it's really just adapting um, and being uh, nimble to, to what you can do. So, um, so, you know, talking about application methods and you mentioned, you know, a lot of them then go to when you're using different species, something getting in earlier really makes a difference and um, really gives you more um, worth when you're considering putting more biodiversity into the system. So when you're looking towards your species choice and your crop rotation, what um, mixes do we usually see in Illinois that, that have shown um, to be better incorporated into the system or, or what do we consider when we're looking at our species options? Well, once we want to get away from that cereal rye, and, and sometimes even if you're planting soybeans, you know, we talked a little bit about um, a wet spring and trying to get over those issues. Um, we can, we don't have to necessarily use cereal rye, even in a soybean situation. A lot of people look to using things such as maybe a wheat or barley or triticale. And as we look at all those, we give up a little bit on the overwintering side of things. So they do need to be seeded earlier. Um, come springtime though, there's a lot less biomass. 
so you have a lot less concerns when it comes to things like uh, 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 making that mat out there or having too much moisture to cause you some problems. Now, the downside of that is, you know, you don't have as much biomass. That's, you know, that's both a good thing and a bad thing because that biomass is what's taking up nutrients, um, helping to build your soil structure. Uh, but they're also a little bit slower to get to get out of the gate. So they in the springtime, so they're not taking off as early. Again, that gives you a little more time to get out there and do the termination. So we do see those other cereals being used. Um, and then what we mix into them um, is a little more. The, the, these are the species that we tend to see more you know, monocultures of. You know, if you're going to go out and do just one species, more than likely it's probably going to be be those cereals. But we do see people adding and blending a lot in. Um, brassicas tend to be probably the first thing they go for. Rapeseed has become very popular over the last you know five to ten years. Certainly before that, we saw a lot of radishes and turnips, which are still out there a lot. We see those thrown in quite frequently. But a lot of growers have gone to using rapeseed, which is you know the same as canola basically. Um, but they like that because it's pretty inexpensive on the seed size. It's a very small seed. It's uh, you know pretty low cost to throw into like a cereal rye mix or blend. Or, or with anything else, uh, it's a little more, a little more winter hardy. So you do have to watch that if you did want to do a winter terminal mix, for example, with oats or something like that. Sometimes rapeseed does overwinter a little better than something like a radish or a turnip. So that's kind of what, what do you want out of the system? Some guys like that, some guys don't. So that's definitely been thrown in there a lot. Um, any of the brassicas do kind of fit in well with the cereals as a mix. Um, and, and we do see them help to reduce the biomass in the springtime a little bit, if that's a concern, um, just by having that extra competition out there in the fall, it keeps those cereals from tillering or growing so much. It comes springtime, you can have a little, little less uh, biomass, which can be, you know, both a good or a good and a bad thing. It just depends on what your goal is. The legumes are awesome. Also oftenly, you know, also often put in with a lot of these mixes. A uh, little bit more of a struggle to get them to be successful, um, just again, partially because of the herbicides that we've talked about, but also largely they just need to be in earlier if we want them to overwinter. There's not a whole lot of legumes that we can use in a corn and soybean system that are going to give you much nitrogen in the fall. So we're trying to get that overwintering aspect. Uh, but then even in the springtime, we have to let them go to the flower before they really give back a lot of nitrogen. So we see crimson clover is still probably the biggest, uh, the most popular choice for legumes, but we do see people using things such as hairy vetch. Um, hairy vetch is a, is a very good choice for overwintering and getting biomass, but it, it does come with a little more baggage in terms of management. It contains a lot of hard seed. Um, it's a little bit harder to kill, uh, but it is, it is uh, definitely an option for people wanting to look to, to get nitrogen. Um, other legumes can be used as well, and frequently we see people put mixes out there, try to throw out three different types of clovers just to see what would, would work. So maybe even just a common medium red clover and a balanced clover. Um, you know, the summer annuals, uh, we have seen a few people experiment with doing some summer annuals a little later in the year than we would expect. Uh, but nonetheless, we have to keep in mind that those, the buckwheats, the sorghum sudans, the pearl millets, all those types of things are summer annuals that are best used when you can seed uh, in the middle of the summer and why they can add a lot of diversity. Um, we usually don't get much of an effect out of them in the springtime. So usually see those two to three way mixes in a corn soybean system, looking at a grass, a brassica and a legume is real common. Definitely, and especially, so we have to mention, you know, if you're going before corn, 
do not do cereal rye before corn as a beginning <laughs> attempt. You know, we only encourage cereal rye before corn when you have um, experience and if you have the applications to do more of that upfront nitrogen um, and that you're ready to complement the system. Um, we do, um, you know, cereal rye being that heavy hitter with a lot of the benefits. So we see why it, it is used most commonly. Um, you know, we need some more options to use before corn. It's exciting. We've had in the last few years more using the barley and triticale, like you mentioned. And so we're trying to figure out um, some other winter hardy options, but cereal rye always wins out usually. And so talking about just, you know, we, we got to touch base. We, again, this is a podcast. We can't go largely into the subject of nitrogen before corn, but just touching base lightly on um, if you, a lot of these programs are encouraging, you know, if you're, if you're doing all the right things and now it's like one of your last options is figuring out a overwintering cover crop before corn, can you touch base on some of those nitrogen key points? Yeah, this is definitely where we see um, the, the majority of the issues with cover crops is, you know, using that cereal rye ahead of corn. And there are some scenarios where it, it maybe is warranted if you're in a highly erodible situation, for example. Um, and this is where we often talk about, well, what's your yield goal? You know, if somebody's in a, in a lower yield environment, um, then, then maybe adding cereal rye sooner um, to try to control erosion might make some sense. But for people on that flat black, high yielding um, commodity corn situation, yeah, definitely is something that needs to be thought of a little bit farther down the line and make sure that you have the proper management to do it. Uh, so as far as nitrogen goes, uh, we talked a little bit on the no-till side of things. I think when we move to no-till, we see a lot of people jump in using like a starter fertilizer. Um, we use a 1034-0 ourselves that goes in furrow. You're giving it just that little bit of a bump because you got those cooler, wetter soils from the no-till and you also don't have the nitrogen release from the tillage. But once we move to having that grass cover crop or really any cover crop out there in the springtime, you know, now we've moved from just not releasing the nitrogen in a no-till situation, but we have an actively growing root taking up the, the readily available nitrogen, and that can negatively affect our corn crops. We like to see some upfront nitrogen. Actually, I shouldn't even say we like to see. We, we absolutely want to see upfront nitrogen if you're planting corn into a, um, into a cover crop scenario. Ideally, that's being banded with the planter. We'd like to see 30 units banded with the planter. Um, you know, obviously you have to be careful where that's going around the seed, but there's ways to do that. Or if we need to do some sort of broadcast application, we're usually looking for 70 to 80 units uh, being broadcast over the top. We're not asking for more nitrogen in the system, right? One of the goals of the cover crops is obviously to reduce nutrient loss and to reduce our inputs. It's not about more nitrogen in the system. It's about making sure it's there and readily available for that corn crop so it can get off to a good start. I think catch on the key points there. Um, so jumping more, you know, when I first started with soil health and as an agronomist, I went to a lot of soil health talks um, and there was a lot of claims and it seemed too good to be true. Um, I was definitely a stick in the mud when I started, when I was looking at fields of, of just not seeing the benefits that were talked about at meetings. Um, and especially on the, the lab side of when you're trying to analyze soil health in the lab setting, um, it's hard to kind of see those benefits of, of what is actually making a difference in the field. So when do you start to see soil health benefits when you start using cover crops? It's going to obviously vary. And that's kind of the, the easy answer of it depends, but we'll also try to be a little more realistic about that. Because um, when we talk about soil health, there's obviously different aspects of that. What exactly are we looking for? 
So right off the bat, you know, erosion is certainly going to be a benefit that everybody ought to see within, you know, the, almost the first year of applying a, a living green root out there, holding on to it. And that's something that I think even on flat black ground, people are starting to understand with the heavier rains that we've been receiving, you know, everybody needs to be thinking about erosion anymore. Um, so that's right off the bat, something most people would see within the, you know, three to five year time frame, even with no tilling, soil aggregation, uh, building aggregate stability, building soil structure, I think has been a benefit that a lot of farmers have seen. And the way they visually see that is just with better water infiltration. I mean, most farmers uh, that adopt these practices will, will oftentimes say, well, yeah, we had that heavy rain and, you know, I just did not have the water running off my field the same way my neighbor did. And if I did have water coming off my field, it was so much cleaner, right? Because soil aggregation is not just about getting that infiltration, but it just holds together better. So when that water runs over it, it's, it's not leaving the field. And, and we see many farmers that have sent us pictures and testimonials. You've, I'm sure everybody's seen those of here's the neighbor's field coming off and here's my field coming off. So that is a very big visual, um, a, a visual indicator that I think a lot of farmers see. We can see earthworms as another one. I know, you know, 15 years ago or 20 years ago, they were talking about, you know, if you don't have these true earthworms out in your field, you're probably never going to see them in, in your lifetime. But I think that's been kind of proven as a myth. We've seen a lot of fields that go from full tillage to no till. And within five to six years, sometimes we're seeing all these earthworm middens out there. So that, that is really another great indicator because if you dig a root pit, um, which we've, we've done on our own farm a few times, you see those earthworm holes going down four or five feet. And you see those roots just following those earthworm paths now. Um, but if we want to see that from an economic side of things, that's a little bit different. Like, what do we want to actually get out of this? So certainly in, in dry years, we see a lot of benefit from the soil health practices and getting some better yields and getting, um, you know, so that's obviously kind of what we want to see. Is we want to show it up, see it show up in those yield maps. That, that can take a while because we need to build organic matter um, and we need to build that soil health to a point where we're getting those benefits. Cutting inputs is another spot where we talk about um, seeing some of the profitability from soil health. So weed control is, is one of those things that people talk about, talk a, a lot about, and that's going to come as a result of using something like cereal rye, getting those high biomass crops out there that are going to outcompete, as you've kind of mentioned earlier, some of the, some of the, some of the weed, uh, weeds out there. So it takes time. You got to know what you're looking for too, and you need to be real realistic of what you want out of it. Um, if you're approaching this, just thinking it's going to solve everything on your farm, um, that's maybe not the best way to do it. You need to be specific about what I want out of this. Do I want better organic matter? Do I want erosion control? And then really try to take a look and quantify those things. Uh, but I'm happy to hear if you have any other direction that you'd like to go with that or any thoughts on, that you have about how to uh, do these indicators. No, um, I think it is fun when we get pictures from farmers um, that what they've seen in the field. I'm even getting more of, you know, in season when we're starting to look at the July months of looking at soil temperatures from the surface or below and, and seeing the, the cover crop being able to, to keep uh, soil temperatures cooler in those months, which really helps that. Um, you know, helping in moisture and the, the biological activity continue on to go. So I do like getting photos from the field and, and it's really just walking your fields and being able to see those differences, um, especially in the spring too, when we, we start to see more of those, you know, heavy rainfall events and just stepping out into your fields, being able to walk across and seeing the structure yourself and um, 
you know, we work with a lot of side-by-side -side trials where you can see the emergence of, especially just walking soybean fields, um, especially, you know, they're not breaking their necks as much or they're, they're getting just a better start, um, which sometimes at the end of the year, you don't see that yield difference, but we're hoping in the long run um, that resiliency building those plants to be healthier throughout the season will pay off in the long run for sure. And that is a, a point where many farmers find when they move to no-till and strip-till, you know, even before they get into cover crops is you, you get to park the rotary hoe. You don't have to, you don't get that out near as much. Um, and we have seen that, uh, you know, in some spring times where everybody's got to get out and they're fighting that soil crusting on the corn because that is definitely a result of that heavy tillage and not having that soil structure. So um, that is always a good feeling when everybody's pulling the rotary hose out of the shed and, and you don't need to worry about that because you have that soil structure that prevented that crusting. Yeah, and hopefully, you know, we see farmers at field days and we have the rainfall simulator and we do the slate test and the slump test and and hopefully it's getting to the point now and you can um, just take that. You got to take it to your own field. You got to try it yourself and and um, be able to just put it on a few acres and, and get started. So hopefully a lot of these key points that we touched on today um, just bring into light the reality of, of getting these practices on the field, you know, as I said, you know, going to soil health talks and, and seeing the benefits from farmers who've done it for 10 years, if it was that easy, everyone would be doing it. So the reason why um, we had this podcast today was really just bringing the light of, you know, as we're seeing so much behind the space of cover crops and no-till and um, all the benefits, it, it's a challenge. Um, and there's a reason why it, it's not widely adopted, um, and but, but we're getting to the point where we're seeing it as a tool that can outcompete some of your other practices, which makes it very interesting and fun to work with as an agronomist. So kind of to wrap up today, um, what advice do you have in the carbon market space when it comes to this practice adoption? And what are some steps growers can take towards being successful as they're looking to adopt for the first time? You know, take it slow, start off on small acres. I think those are, are pretty common um, pieces of advice. But I will say, as we've kind of touched on, um, a lot of these markets, there's definitely this big, big interest in getting cover crops out there, which is great. We know the cover crops do a lot of good things. But I think what we've kind of stressed throughout this podcast is um, maybe that's not every acre every year starting off. So I, I don't be afraid to, um, you know, start off with cereal rye ahead of soybeans. And, you know, maybe that next year, just go back to your con um, conventional program for, for corn, reduce the tillage, I guess I should say. We want to get away from the tillage aspect, but, you know, start off with a cover crop ahead of soybeans, do that reduced tillage ahead of corn, a strip till program. And I, I don't feel forced to put out something like a cereal rye ahead of a corn crop until you're ready to do it because uh, we've that that's where we see the the primary issue so don't feel forced that you if somebody's really telling you you have to have a cover crop out there every acre every year that's a goal and we want to do that and we have programs where we tell people that right we are side-by-side -side trials we work with growers that we want to cover crop out every year but on large acres um, if you're really thinking of jumping into one of these things I would be cautious thinking that I have to get those cereal cover crops out ahead of corn if that's what that program is driving me towards until I'm ready to do it. They can be done. We see people doing it all the time, but you have to have the right management set up. And if you do not, don't jump into it till you're prepared. Yes, and hopefully, you know, carpet market space or regardless of program or, um, you know, just trying it on your own, uh, it's really management wise, you know, if, if you don't think the cover crop's going to work, it's probably not going to work. 
And if you're just trying to get, you know, something out there to get out there doing something like a, a small rate of oats um, mixed in with some uh, radishes and you're throwing it out late in November, you know, that's not really going to move the needle in any direction for, for any type of, you know, uh, operational um, benefits for that farmer or just across the landscape of Illinois of what we're trying to accomplish um, with the nutrient loss reduction strategy. So, you know, it, it is fun when we're working with farmers, you know, having those goals in place and making sure that um, it, it's accomplishing what that farmer needs to see on their operation first and foremost um, and complementing their system and, and getting it to work for them. So, it's always fun to talk to you about cover crops. We do this all day long. Um, you know, it, we've had spring management talks throughout this spring um, this year where we got to sit down with a lot of farmers and we have questions come up about, you know, planting early maturities, uh, you know, putting in and how putting in these nitrogen approaches have have made a difference on their farms. And then especially looking at the weed control, you know, we talk with farmers who are non GMO or um, really starting to see, you know, how maybe just doing a post application if they're planting green can change that um, cost effect on, on especially the herbicide usage. So we could talk about this all day long. We do have a webinar that we'll be posting um, where Jim and I will go into detail across a lot more of spring management that needs to be considered. Um, trends we're seeing across Illinois, a lot more of that um, you know, a lot more in the termination space, you know, especially a lot more in, of the species choice and looking at your C to N ratio and the maturity of your cover crop and why it's important to, to be able to terminate at the right time. So that webinar will be um, posted on our Elsoy Advisor website. And so I'd like to once again, thank our guest today, Jim Eiserman, the Illinois Sustainable Ag Partnership Soil Health Specialist. If you're interested in learning more about the science behind carbon and other soybean management resources, visit www.lsoyadvisor.com. That's ilsoyadvisor.com to learn more. This has been the Carbon Sense Podcast. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss any of the important carbon conversations to come. Thank you.